of Jesus, we, um, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy, and we thank you for your tender, tender touch and your involvement in the lives of, of, um, uh, uh, of your, your people, your sheep. We lift up Adam and Silas to you, and we pray, O oh God, that you would um, minister to them and strengthen them in the time of their need. Lord, we pray that you would be with them, that you would strengthen them, that uh, you would encourage them, that, Lord, that uh, you would provide for them and that the needs that need to be met would, would be met. Um, well, we, um, uh, we know that they may be a, a world away, but, Lord, you know their name. And, and just as, a, as, a, as Dan is asking specific prayer for them, we pray for them, Lord. We pray that you would encourage them. And, Lord, that um, uh, you would be with Eve as well uh, in, in, in the midst of her second trimester of pregnancy. God, that you would um, uh, show yourself strong in her life and in the life of these believers, as no doubt there are young believers in Christ that are watching them to see how they respond and react to this. And so, God, pour out your Holy Spirit and pour out your healing balm and be glorified in the midst of this. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. All right, give someone a high five and have a seat if you would. Good. Open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Revelation, chapter 2. Uh, we've been doing a study uh, through the, the letters of the church to Revelation. The letters to the churches. This one is... Entitled the Smyrna Overcomers. The Smyrna Overcomers. Uh, there is one belief system that says, and it's just a belief, it's not gospel in the sense that it may or may not be true, but there are those who believe that each of these specific churches represent a specific timeline within the church. That if you follow the history of the church, that you'll see that uh, some of the things that were going on in these churches kind of mirror uh, uh, some part of church history. Uh, so starting off with Ephesus, if you were with us last week, uh, they believed that this period in church history that would represent uh, the, the, what was happening in Ephesus uh, would represent the time period from between 33 A.D. and 100 A.D. It was the church of the first century. Generally, there were good things that the Lord had to say to this church, but very quickly, seemingly, they had left their first love. This is the first century church. And in the midst of some pretty amazing things that were happening, they had left their first love. This was the honeymoon, at least the early part of this was the honeymoon period for the church. Uh, it was a desirable time, even, even as, as Ephesus uh, means desirable ones. And so uh, it was the time of the apostles, it was the time of, of extraordinary miracles, tremendous power. The church was growing in leaps and bounds. People were devoted uh, to the church and to Jesus Christ, willing to no doubt die for Jesus. The entire New Testament was written during that time. And then towards the tail end or, or middle part of that, then persecution began. Persecution began in this, just after this honeymoon period, and you could even say during that, there was actually a law on the books that said that no Christian once brought before the tribunal should be exempt from punishment without renouncing his religion. Okay? Persecution was rapid during this time. It would get even worse. They were, uh, the Christians were, uh, were, you know about the Colosseum and all the things that happened there where they were, they were placed in skins of animals and, and place before wild beast. Uh, it was Nero, Caesar Nero, who uh, uh, 
uh, blame the, lit the city of Rome on fire and then blame the Christians for it. And so he would literally take Christians and, 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 and cover them in wax and light them on fire to light his garden. James was beheaded. The apostle James Philip was scourged. Uh, sent to prison and crucified. Andrew was crucified transversely. Mark was dragged to death. Peter was crucified upside down, not considering himself worthy enough to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was. Paul was beheaded. Luke was hung. And of course, John, who wrote the book of Revelation, was boiled in oil. Funny thing is, though, is that he came out like unscathed. Like totally like nothing. And you know what? If you're an executioner and, and you boil someone in oil and they come out and say, is that all you got? That's a bad day at the office, right? <laughs> you're an executioner. You go home. Your wife says, how did it go today? You go, not good. You do not want to know. You do not want to know. We boiled it with oil. And he came out like singing worship songs. <laughs> that was something else right there. Um, there was a change also in the leadership of the church where you began to see a shift from pastors, uh, bishops, teachers, deacons, and that was replaced by, by new titles that were, were, uh, were, were creeping up. And, and, and so now you had popes, you had archbishops, you had cardinals, you had priests, uh, a diocese where, where the churches were broken up into d- different Roman districts, and, and there will be much more of that to come. And so we get to the church in Smyrna, uh, the church in Smyrna. Now, as we talked about last week, each of these letters have a, have a, uh, follow a general outline. Uh, first of all, there's a greeting and a presentation where the Lord uh, describes himself in a specific kind of way according to the need of that church. There's a common, uh, a commendation. Uh, uh, you know, an attaboy that, that I recognize and I see what you're doing. Now, as we get to the church in Laodicea, there will be no commendation for them. There's a warning that's given to the churches with the exception of Smyrna, as we'll see, and Philadelphia. There's a counsel to do this or that, a challenge that he offers them, and then there is a promise, and it's typically a blessing to those who overcome in some sort of way. And so, Smyrna, essentially... Um, a wealthy commercial center in Asia Minor. They had coins that were inscribed this way, first in Asia in beauty and size. There were about 100,000 people that lived there, 35 miles north of Ephesus. And as we spoke about, uh, each of these cities were in the order of, uh, geogra- of what they actually were geographically. And so we'll kind of be going kind of along an upside down horseshoe by the time we get to Laodicea in this in this. Uh, area of, of Asia Minor. It was on a, a, a direct trade route uh, from India and Persia to Rome, and so that helped to make it very, very popular place. Uh, they had famous schools of science and medicine, beautiful buildings, paved streets. There was a temple there to the god Bacchus, which was the god of wine. And of course, Smyrna was known for their production of wine. Now, interestingly enough, there were many uh, Jewish people that lived there that um, I guess you could say were backslidden Jews in that they really didn't follow their religion. In fact, in 196 BC, Smyrna built the first temple to Dea Roma, the goddess of Rome, which was sort of a spiritual symbol of the Roman Empire. And once the spirit of Rome um, was worshipped, it, it was a logical and easy step to worship the dead emperors of Rome. 
And once they began to worship the dead emperors of Rome, it was another easy step to worship the living emperors of Rome. And then after that, it was a very easy step to demand such worship as a political act. And then after that, it was even an easier step to demand it as an act of religion. And so, in 23 AD, Smyrna won the privilege over 11 other cities to build the first temple uh, of worship to the emperor Tiberius Caesar. And and Smyrna was a leading city in this Roman cult emperor worship. The Roman emperor Domitian in uh, uh, 81 to 96 BC was the first to demand worship under the title Lord from the people of the Roman Empire as a test of their political loyalty and their religious fervor. Okay, Barclay says this about that time. He says, Emperor worship had begun as spontaneous demonstration of gratitude to Rome. But toward the end of the first century, in the days of Domitian, the final step was taken and Caesar worship became compulsory. Uh, compulsory. Once a year, the Roman citizen must burn a pinch of incense on the altar to the Godhead of Caesar. And having done so, he was given a certificate to guarantee that he had performed his religious duty. Can you imagine that? Once a year, you are forced to give not just political allegiance, but religious allegiance to Caesar as Lord. Once a year. Once a year. Could you imagine that? And they gave you a certificate. To prove that you've done it. And if you did not do it, that was Rome. It would not be good for you. Okay? That's persecution. When you know your time is coming up, when you know that it could be, you know, any day now, they'll be knocking on your door saying, let's go. Wow. Man. So Christians there suffered great persecution. For the most part, they didn't worship Caesar. They met secretly in, in houses. And so most of the people thought they had no faith at all. There were labor unions in Smyrna that were very powerful. And once they found out that you were a Christian, you would be blackballed immediately. And so not only were they a persecuted people, but they were a people that were in poverty. Because of their faith. Um, Many of these people lost businesses, went bankrupt. And then there were the group that were called the 10 percenters. And the 10 percenters were a group that if you were a Christian and someone found that out, they could report you to the Roman authorities. And if you acknowledged that you were, they would take everything that you had and they would sell it. And give 10% of the proceeds to the people who turned you in. So it became financially lucrative to find Christians and turn them in. The name Smyrna comes from the word myrrh. And we'll get to that a little bit later. It's a, a bitter herb that has a beautiful smell to it. And so let's look at this. The Lord speaking to the church at Smyrna. Chapter 2, verse 8 says, And the angel of the Lord, in, uh, and to the angel of the Lord uh, of the church in Smyrna, write, The first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. 
and the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Okay, so Jesus in his greeting represents and shows himself as the first and the last uh, who was dead and who has come to life. This would be an important uh, a greeting to this church in Smyrna. Uh, they would need the hope of the resurrected Christ to know and to give them confidence and faith that, you know what, Jesus was persecuted, Jesus died, but then Jesus rose from the dead. And so when persecution comes my way, boy, I've got to hold on to that with everything I have. And if, if he can defeat death, and that would be, you know, at least from an earthly standpoint, the ultimate price to pay is to literally give your life for the gospel. And these people had to be prepared to, to give their life for the gospel. They, the, the line was so drawn in the sand that they had to be prepared to do that. And to understand that, listen, you, if you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to understand it's probably going to cost you your life, and you, have, you just have to be okay with that. <laughs> Right? Yeah. I mean, it's like guys that sign up, you know, and gals sign up for the military during wartime. You know, you sign up for the, for, for, you know, whatever branch, in particular, maybe the army or whatever. That's what I'm familiar with, you know. And uh, you understand that, you know what, son, uh, at least back in the day, it was men, you know, women in combat or whatever. Now, I don't even know. But, but it's like, you understand, sir, if you sign up for the, there's a strong possibility you're going to go to war. And if you go to war, there's another strong possibility you may not come back. I mean, I think, I think those who are in the military kind of get it to some degree. This is, this is where the church in, in Smyrna was. And so Jesus shows himself as the first and the last, or he represents or greets as the first and the last who was dead and who has come to life. Now, you might want to write this down, Isaiah 44, 6. Isaiah 44, 6. Yahweh, God Almighty speaking, and he says this, says this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am, notice it says, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, that's, that's God the Father, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. Well, who is the Lord of hosts? That's Jesus. So thus says God the Father and God the Son. They're saying at the same time, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. God the Father is the first and the last. And in Revelation, Jesus says, I am the first and the last. Would you agree with me? You cannot have two first and two last. But we believe that in one God. And so when someone says, show me the word Trinity in the Bible. Say, oh, don't worry about that. Let me take you to Isaiah 44, 6. And then let me take you to Revelation. So who's the first? Is it God or is it Jesus? Well, both. <laughs> because they're one. Okay? Here's my write that down. All right, so uh, the commendation. He says, you know what? I know your tribulation and your poverty. Isn't that great? It, listen, first, the greeting, the first and the last. And by the way, I know your tribulation, Jesus says. I mean, like, you're sitting, you're sitting there in, in Smyrna. You know what's coming. And, and someone says, we, we have a letter from John. And, and it's, 
The Lord has a message for us. What is it? Well, he says that he's the first and the last. That he's, he's was dead and he's come to life. And, and he says, he says, you know what? He knows our tribulation and our poverty. How cool would that be to get a letter like that, literally from the hand of God that says, I know your tribulation and, and I know your poverty. Do you ever wonder if God sees what's going on? I mean, we know that he does, right? I mean, I mean, we know that he does. But in the midst of the storm, you ever just wonder, God, do you really see what's going on here? I mean, come on. Habakkuk had that kind of experience. In Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, he, he, he cries out to God. And he says this, How long, O Lord, must I call for help? But you do not listen. What are you saying? God, you're not even listening to me. This is a prophet, minor test, uh, a minor prophet. Violence is everywhere. I cry out, but you do not come to save. Must I forever see these evil deeds? Why must I watch all this misery? Lord, are you not paying attention? Are you not watching what's happening here, God? That's what Habakkuk is saying. So if you ever question or wonder where God is in the midst of something, you're in pretty good company. You're in pretty good company. Well, he knows. He sees. He has experienced tribulation to the nth degree. And so therefore he understands as well. Now, the word here that's used for poverty is a word that means abject poverty. It's very poor. But then here's how the Lord flips it. He says, but you are rich. <laughs> now, you're sitting there in Smyrna, and it's like, well, he sees, he knows, well, he understands. And, and then he says, we're rich. And they're looking around going, is, it, is he talking about us? What, wait, who's, uh, well, but, but hold on. But before you, who is he talking about? Oh, you're rich. See, outwardly, things look pretty bad. And from earth's perspective, uh, they are poor. But heavenly, they are rich. See, sometimes we, we see people in abject poverty and we feel sorry for them. You know what my experience has been? Sometimes they see us in all of our splendor, and they feel sorry for us. It's a matter of perspective. But that tells me this, the Lord has a different perspective. You know what else that tells me? Is that what He says really matters. I mean, it even matters more than what I think about my situation. I mean, I think I'm poor. And the Lord says, no, you're rich. You go, huh? Okay. And you're rich because he knows your situation. And he has taken it upon himself to provide whatever is necessary. And that's what really matters. Interestingly, the Jews that lived in Smyrna were the ones who led this attack against Christians. Isn't that interesting? See, they consider, considered themselves children of God, but they were persecuting the people of God. Religious People that do that don't know the one true God. There have been many times in history, in church history, where the greatest persecution came from those who claim to know God. They have a form of godliness but denied the power, as Paul told Timothy. God says that 
he knew the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews, but are the synagogue of Satan. So here's what the Lord has to say about that. Look at verse nine again. I know your tribulation, your power, you but you are rich and the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. So they thought they were following God. From Jesus has a different perspective. He says they're of the church of Satan. Wow. Strong words. The Amplified Bible of verse 9 says this, I know your affliction and distress and pressing trouble and your poverty, but you are rich. You know, it turns out that God has a heart for the poor. It, it turns out that He has always asked His people to make provision for those who are poor. I'm not talking about the person who just doesn't care about being poor, the person who doesn't want to work, the person who, you know, like, like, a, like a, you know, the guys that hold up the sign and say, what the heck, I just want a beer. Okay, I'm not talking about that kind of poverty, right? By the way, that kind of poverty is only in America. You know, where you can be so poor that you hold up a sign that asks for money for a beer. I mean, come on. That is not poverty. Third world poverty is another story. It's where you have no resources. It's where you have to work to eat. Because if you don't work or you have to, where your whole um, <clears throat> uh, livelihood revolves around finding something to eat, survival. Okay, that's so, 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 but the Lord has a heart for those who are poor. He has a heart for everyone. He has a heart for the rich too. He has a heart for the poor. Those in particular who are marginalized. Those who are enslaved. The, the, those who are, who, are, who are in their position because of maybe a government or because of, of some evil. Oh, the Lord hates that. Proverbs 19.17 says this, He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord, and that which he has given, he will repay to him. Jesus spoke about all those in the end who would come and say, and, 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 and he would say, Blessed are you because, you know what, I was hungry and you what? You gave me something to eat. Yeah, I needed a place to stay and you, you provided a place for me. Jesus said he would say to those. So he likens himself. He links himself with those people. Now, to the church of Smyrna, there's no warning. There's no, there's no uh, 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 correction. Uh, but, but there is some counsel. And he says this. He says in verse 10, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. And literally, stop being afraid. Oh, man, is he just... He, I mean, the, they heard these words and they thought these are words from God and he knows exactly we we are dealing you know we have this tendency to think that 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 people who are who uh, are mighty mighty people of God never fear at all oh they're so full of faith and and yeah there are those who are just like no they but I mean you know what for the most most part they they move ahead in spite of fear and so I you know being afraid isn't wrong in and of itself, as long as you don't let that fear stop you from moving ahead. I think that's where it's wrong. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And so we move ahead even if we're afraid, but we move ahead, right? Right? I mean, if that's right, right? All right. Stop being afraid. The devil is going to cast some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days. Ah, as if we haven't gone through enough. Now we're going to be on lockdown for 10 days. And if you're a theologian, like maybe some of them were, you're thinking, is that 10 literal days? 
What does that mean? And I could just imagine the reader going, I don't know. It says 10 days. That's all I know, okay? I don't have that information. Well, what's going to happen? Well, God's going to allow them to be sifted as Peter was. Remember? And that tells me this. God sets the parameters for our testing. God sets the parameters for our testing. He tells them who uh, they'll be tested. But the devil, he says, the devil will test you for 10 days. He says where they would be put. They would be put in prison. We don't know what that means. Barclay says this, for a man to become a Christian anywhere was to become an outlaw. In Smyrna, above all places, the man to enter the Christian church was literally to take his life in his hands. In Smyrna, the church was a place for heroes. He says, how long? You'll be in tribulation for 10 days. Ah. Now, is that 10 literal days? Some theologians believe that it meant 10 specific persecutions under Roman uh, emperors that followed Constantine. Some believe it meant 10 years of testing. Either way, it tells us this. God sets the time for our testing. God sets the time. And you know what else that tells us? That tells us there's a purpose in our testing. Ah, if you're not a follower of God, where do you go when, when life throws you a knuckleball? I mean, you did not see that one coming. Swing and a miss. And it's like, ah, man, if you're not a follower of, of God, where do you go with that? Random chance plus time. Just, you know, that's just how, that's life. That's how it goes. And then there's nothing to cling to. There's nothing to hang on to. You just sort of get through it the best you can. And that's it. What if you don't have what's, in, what's necessary inside of you to get through it? What if this is so overwhelming you don't know where to go? What if you need more than just a boy, you know, keep a stiff upper lip and keep on? What if you need more than that? It's the midnight hour and there's no one around. Where do you go? I suggest you do what I did. Look up and cry out. <laughs> I suggest that. Ooh. Now let me ask you this. Why couldn't they just pray themselves out of this test? What if they got this and they said, oh, no, no, we don't receive that word. That's not a word from God. We're not going to be tested or tempted by the devil. We're going to pray against that. (laughs) That was the Lord Jesus who said it. All the praying in the world wouldn't get you out of it, but that would help to get you through it. What if they just rebuke the devil? We rebuke that in the name. Sorry for the southern accent. In the name of Jesus, we, re, we don't. Listen, man, John wrote this. He got it from the messenger who got it from Jesus. I'm just telling you what it says. You're about to be tested and tempted by the devil for 10 days. And you can jump up and down and shoot and holler and fast and pray, but it's coming. Right? Wow. How they responded to that probably meant everything in the world. How do you think they responded? I think they just embraced it. Because of the one that it came from. I don't know. The purposes of suffering is to purify us. 
to make us more like Jesus, to test our faith so that we know that it's authentic, so that we know that it's authentic, to bring honor and glory to the Lord and to cause us to be a witness. Jesus said that you will be my witnesses. You know that word is martyrs. JJSO is an expression for Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the world. You will be my martyrs. Okay, so he gives them a challenge next. He gives them a challenge, and, and he says this. He says, be faithful unto death. Do not fear what is about to, you about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison, that you may be tested. You'll have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death. Was that a word of encouragement for those people? They already knew that some of them weren't going to make it. I believe it was. Be faithful unto death. I believe they looked at one another in the eyes. And they said, okay, be faithful unto death. That's our instruction. Unto death. Okay? Do it. And encourage me to do it. Unto death. <clears throat> Barclay said, all that the Christians had to do regarding the worship of Caesar, all that the Christians had to do was to burn that pinch of incense, say, Caesar is Lord, receive their certificate, and go away and worship as they pleased. But that is precisely what the Christians would not do. They would give no man the name of Lord. That name they would keep for Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. They would not even formally conform. Let me tell you about Bishop Polycarp. He was a product of this era. He was one who refused to acknowledge Caesar as Lord. He refused. Old man, old man, he's up in years, probably a disciple of John himself, probably one of the last links of the apostles to someone who was still alive, uh, or at least to John. So during the Olympic Games, the crowd, you know, they were a bloodthirsty crowd, and they screamed for blood, and they called for Polycarp. Because they knew that he was a man of integrity and a man of faith. He was staying at a friend's farm. And the only reason that he was at a farm was that, first of all, the church feared that his life would be in danger. And also, he sort of felt like that he had a few more years that the Lord was going to give him. And so he uh, went to the farm, so to speak. One day, um, as he was praying in his room, he had a vision of his pillow engulfed in flames. He knew what God was saying to him and boldly told those who were around him, I see that I must be burnt at the stake. Well, the guards finally found him. They actually tortured one of the farm workers to find out exactly where he was. And they came to arrest him, and he was expecting them. He asked them before they left, could I pray for an hour? And they were kind of embarrassed that they had been sent, this angry mob had been sent to arrest this man who was so old and fragile. 
And he said, can I pray for an hour? They said, sure. He prayed for two hours. And the guards asked him this, what's so wrong about saying that Caesar is Lord? And he simply said, not going to do it. The chief of this tribe or this, uh, this police force was so mad that he pushed him out of his carriage to the ground. Polycarp, Polycarp got up and walked the rest of the way to the arena. At the scene at the arena, one Christian named uh, Quintus had proclaimed himself a follower of Jesus. I'll die for you, Lord. Said that he was willing to be martyred. But when he saw the vicious animals in the arena, he, he lost courage and agreed to burn incense to Caesar as Lord. This was on the day that Polycarp would show up. There was another man named uh, Gomatius who didn't back down. He marched out, faced the lions, and died an agonizing death for his Lord and Savior, Jesus. Well, <clears throat> Polycarp was told one last time to curse Jesus and make sacrifice to Caesar. This is what he said, quote, 86 years I have served him, and he has never once wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who saved me? He said this, if you pretend that you do not know who I am, listen plainly, I am a Christian. If you want to learn the teaching of Christianity, set a day and give me a hearing. <laughs> they threatened to throw him to the wild beast. And he said, simply, humbly, call them. Now, he didn't know they had already put the wild beast away. Uh, because, you know, it was a big to-do to put them away and get them back out again. So, I don't know. They, they really were just threatening. They, they really weren't going to do that. But he didn't know that. So then they threatened him by fire. And he said, your fire burns for an hour and goes out. But the fire of coming judgment is eternal. As they arranged the wood and tied him to a pole that they had placed in the middle, he prayed. And he said, I thank you that you have graciously thought me worthy of this day and of this hour, that I may receive a portion in the number of the martyrs in the cup of your Christ. And the flames around him grew higher and higher and higher. But a strange thing happened. They didn't touch him. It was as if God had put a hedge of protection around him. And there was one eyewitness who said this, quote, He was in the middle, not as burning flesh, but as bread baking or as gold and silver refined in a furnace. And we smelled such a sweet aroma as the breath of incense of some other precious spice, perhaps the spice of myrrh. I don't know. And so the executioner got mad and pierced him with a sword and his blood flowed out, and it actually put out the flames. But he died. <laughs> and the Jews of Smyrna hated him so much that they wanted his body to be thrown in a pile of trash and left. Interestingly, they were the ones who collected the wood and on the Sabbath. We told you they were of the synagogue of Satan. So Smyrna is our word for myrrh, a spice that was crushed to make a fine perfume. And you might remember, what were the three gifts that were brought to the Lord Jesus? Gold, frankincense, myrrh. 
picture of the suffering that Christ would go through. And so um, the Lord leaves a promise for the church at Smyrna, and he says this, Be faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. First, I will give you a crown of life. Crowns. Crowns were worn. There were two different kinds of crowns in the, in the New Testament in the Greek language. One was a crown that was worn by a king or some dignitary. Got to have a crown, right? And then there was the crown that was given to an athlete as a trophy. Uh, the Lord promises a crown of life, um, not a crown that will dry up someday or fade. Pete Maravich, one of my faith heroes, if you didn't know, one of the 50 greatest basketball players of all time, uh, way ahead of his time in the things that he did, uh, six foot five and a half inch point guard who was an amazing basketball player who came to know Jesus Christ before his death. He said this, speaking at a Billy Graham crusade before, crusade before he died, he said, I received trophies, awards, and was on all the magazine covers. He said, I have a six foot five and a quarter inch uh, tall trophy in my attic from 15 years ago collecting dust because that's what trophies do they collect dust he's right trap said this a crown without cares co-rivals envy end king's crowns are so weighty with cares that off they make their heads ache not so with this crown the joys whereof are without measure or mixture He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Those who overcome persecution, but not just those who overcome persecution, but those who are linked together with Jesus and overcome persecution. Jesus said in the world, you will have tribulation. Speaking to his church and speaks to us today. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So we overcome because he has overcome and because we're dynamically united together with him. And so the prophetic picture is this. From 100 A.D. to 312 A.D., the church was crushed through persecution and purified. Upwards of 5 million Christians died, yet the church grew perhaps more than at any other time. A friend of mine was visiting the uh, famous underground church leader in China, Pastor Lam, and he's since gone on to be with the Lord. This is a man who spent some 25, 30 years in prison for his faith, uh, lost his wife, lost one of his children who died while he was in prison, and it got to the point where this, this man, no matter what they did to him, he was just going to preach the gospel, and so he had an underground church in China. The government knew about it, everybody knew about it, and they just let him do what he was going to do. I mean, ultimately, they would have had to kill him, and There were so many Westerners and people that knew of him that that would have created an enormous amount of political pressure. Not that the government of China really cares about political pressure, but we know that if they would have killed him, they just would have promoted him early. Call that early retirement into heaven. And so my friend was asking this church pastor, he said, this this amazing man of God, he says, how can the church in America pray that the persecution in China would stop. And this is what he said. He said, don't pray that it stops. Pray that we endure. Because every time the church is persecuted, the church grows. 
That's what he said. I would submit to you that every time we suffer or are persecuted, we grow. Let me read the um, second part of this email. I wanted to give you the update. And if Lawrence, if you'll get that song ready, I have a song I'd like to close with. Greetings, I said I would give you an update from my request for urgent prayer two days ago. Here is that update after our key leader and his disciple had a motorcycle accident coming back from a ministry trip into a nearby village. Adam has a severe bruise on his foot with some swelling. The accident caused the skin to be split apart. He seems to be full of faith in the midst of this trial. This morning he said, our endurance is fully alive and we are learning to trust God in all circumstances. I said, I wish I could be with uh, him to pray face to face and be present. But it seems obvious that God wanted to deepen all the believers faith and dependency on God, not their dependency on me. Silas is in much worse shape. He has broken his leg and is admitted to the hospital outside of his village. His wife is struggling to keep up with making food. Hospitals in rural India don't serve food. Take care of the kids. And of course, Silas's small chai shop is either in jeopardy or at least in a tight spot. Many of the believers have called or come to help. They live, many of them, quite far away and have no clear way to come. So they are working out how to respond courageously and fully to the need. Is that cool? How cool is that? These new believers responding to the need of this brother. Here's what he says what to pray for. Pray that the key leaders would recognize that internal transformation God wants to do in them. Learning to walk by faith, not sight. This has everything to do with trusting God in new, innovative ways. Trusting that God can provide for us, especially when we cannot see a path forward. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. Write that down. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. And then he says, pray that they would become the exceptional kinds of leaders who invite trials as God's way of carving his image in us. This has been an important personal testimony I have been sharing with Adam just as I was leaving India a week ago. Write this down, Romans 5, 1 through 5. And then he says this. He says, you are literally the only people praying for these believers. Pray for dramatic breakthrough in what they believe about Jesus as this impacts their practice as a new church more than anything else. Thank you guys to um, watch this video clip. It's a group called All Together Separate, one of my favorite Christian bands.
straight and narrow way When we finally see His face And feel His warm embrace It will be worth In all that day Present troubles don't compare to all the glory our God He has prepared. Cause when we finally see His face and feel His strong embrace, it will be worth in all that day. They celebrate and they and they call your name, and I can hear the Father with a tear in his eye, and he says, "Well done, my good and faithful servant." Yeah.